Loved, cherished, comforted. Welcome to the podcast ministry of Our Resolute Hope, where you will find grace, not just a concept or a doctrine of grace, but a person, a person whose name is Jesus, a person who brings hope, a determined, resolute hope that can sustain you and empower you to live courageously in this fallen world. Join us now as we learn more about Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our life. Dear ones, thank you so much today for joining us on this episode of the Our Resolute Hope podcast. We are so blessed that you're here. My name is John Russ, and I serve as the host And I'm here one more time with my dear friend, Pastor Frank Friedman. My friend, how is life for you today? Oh, John, I'm I'm excited. We had a record response to our last podcast that aired a few weeks ago on uh, the danger of false teachers. And so, you know, as we get deeper into this book, it's like digging deeper into a gold mine with richer and deeper veins. So I'm looking forward to discovering with you and the Holy Spirit and his inspired word, the precious jewels that have come out for the people who are uh, listening to this podcast. And of course, yours in my heart is that both of all of them would uh, come to know God better than they had before. Amen. Make it so, sir, please. Well, friends, if you're joining us for the first time, Frank and I are in the middle of uh, what we call just a friendly chat, Frank and John and Jesus, and we're chatting our way through Paul's epistle to the Colossians, Um, probably the best book out there for highlighting the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And we left last time in chapter 2, verse 12 of Colossians, and Frank, when we finished We promised our listeners we'd come back next time, which is now this time, uh, to spend a few more minutes chatting about one specific concept in Colossians 2.12. And that's based on this passage, having been buried with him in baptism. So my friend, I'd like us to spend a bit of a time just chatting about baptism. And when we left off at the last episode, You mentioned that the key to understanding baptism is that it means immersion. And so, in other words, complete identification. And as I've thought about that, Frank, this analogy came to mind, and I want to use this as a springboard for your comments. This picture of a piece of white cloth came to my mind being dipped into a vat of red dye. And when it comes out again, there's not a stitch of white left. The cloth is still the cloth. It's still exactly as it was before, but there's no vestige of white anymore. Every place you look is red. The cloth is just changed so that no matter how you look at it, you'd never know it was white. All you see is red. So did I capture the picture, Frank, of what immersion and identification looks like? Absolutely, John. This translation, which is in almost every modern translation, has led the people of God to a little bit of misinformation. And I would use that term very carefully, but in misinformation in terms of incompleteness. Whenever you come to a text 
the Greek text, for example, you translate. So when you see Irene, you write peace. When you see Neos, you write temple. Anthropos, you translate man. But for some reason, virtually every translator, when they come to this word, baptism, they write baptism. In the Greek word is baptizo. So instead of translating, they transliterate. And they put this Greek word into the English text and they don't translate it. So instantly for the part of the reader, their minds instantly go to the act of baptism, the symbol of baptism, where we go into the water and instantly that's what people think of. And I've done this now for 30 years, John. I ask them, I'll have them read that passage and I'll say, okay, what's he talking about? And they're going to say, are being baptized by someone where we went under the water. And I said, oh, my goodness. No, 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 no. And it's it's coming from a failure to translate. And the Greek word baptizo means immersed into or identified with, wholly identified with. So it should be translated instead of transliterated. We have been buried with him, immersed into him, identified with him. That's what it's talking about. And so your illustration of a white cloth that goes into red dye, the white cloth disappears. It died. It gets resurrected now, taken out of that dye as a brand new and different cloth. It's red now. It's still the cloth, it's still you, but it's a different you. Uh, the old you died, the new you resurrected. And that's what this idea of immersion communicates. So, John, I, I think it's a wonderful illustration. I once heard a guy use the issue of sugar being put into tea. And when you stir it, the sugar disappears. And the tea and the sugar are now one. And that's a good illustration. It communicates the idea of union with Christ that we certainly have. We know that from 1 Corinthians. But inadequate in, you're still you. You didn't lose your identity when you got placed into union with Christ. But you did get a brand new identity because the old man was crucified and you've been resurrected brand new. You know, Frank, as I read through the book of Acts and you see baptism mentioned, it's almost as if it's a natural act. And when you read through these passages, and I'm going to translate very, very loosely here, it's it's like, oh, you were baptized? Well, you trusted Christ? What's to stop you from being baptized? It's like it's a natural follow-up because something changed on the inside. They want to immediately testify about that change by doing something different on the outside. And when I think of that, my mind goes, Frank, to Galatians 3, where Paul writes, clothe yourself with Christ. Romans 13, clothe yourself with Christ. It's almost like, let the first thing someone sees about you be Jesus. And so when I think of baptism, I think of a proclamation to everybody around that, hey, there's something different on the inside. So it's really it's really a testimony, an external proclamation on our part that, yes, we have been crucified, buried, and resurrected. Wow, what a cool picture. 
It is a great picture, John, and you hit it on the head. I was listening to you wondering, is he going to use this word? And you did testify. When you look at the book of Acts in chapter one, verse eight, Jesus' final words were, you will receive power when you receive my spirit and you will be witnesses, testifiers of the truth of who I am and what I've done. And so, yeah, as soon as we receive Christ and the old man is dead, the new man is resurrected, the most natural thing in the world is to manifest who you are, to want to testify of what Jesus has done. And so the best way to do that is a picture on the outside that demonstrates what happened on the inside. And so you go under the waters to show you died. You come out of the waters to show you've been resurrected. The baptismal waters are a watery grave. And, you know, this is very important, John. I'm so glad you you stressed this because so many people look at the waters of baptism and think it's washing their sin away. And that's not a bad picture. We know that the blood of Jesus did wash us and cleanse us. But baptism's bigger than that. The washing away of sin is what God did for us. The doing away of that old nature that we hated, that we wanted to, to get rid of. God did that for us too at the cross where we died with Christ. And so baptism is such a huge, huge picture. And it becomes the basis for any ethical demand that's presented in the rest of the New Testament. We're to be dead to sin. We're dead to the world. We're dead to what we used to desire. And now we're alive to God. So this is a fundamental truth that so many people really don't fully understand. That's right. And if you look at the flow of this passage, my friend, you know, Paul says you've been buried with him in baptism. And there's a reason because right in 13, he dives in and you who were dead, this gets back to your a comment a few moments ago. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And God made you alive together, not just alive, but alive together with him, having mm. forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, Frank, uh, 25 things jump out at this to me. But the first thing I notice here, my friend, is the tenses. Mm-hmm. You were dead, past tense. God made you alive, past tense, having forgiven us all our trespasses, past tense. Mm. This is already done, Frank, isn't it? Oh, John. And this is what was the revelation, the opening of my eyes 30 years ago. I taught all these truths. I taught that we were crucified with Christ. I taught that we died in Christ. I taught that we had been resurrected already. I taught that we were seated in heaven. But what I did, John, is I taught that it was positional truth, that it was the way God sees things, but it's, of course, not the way it really is. And what God opened my eyes to is that the word positional isn't even in the Bible. That's right. (laughs) It's reality. If God says it, that's how it is. I really died. I've really already been resurrected. I am already seated in heaven. I'm already forgiven of everything I ever did and ever will do. 
And my goodness, that becomes the basis of my peace with God, my joy from God. And then because that's true, this right man that we now are has become the perfect vessel for the right God to live in and union with. So we now have God inside us for him to live through us. And that's the basis of our radical new lives that we all live. So this is fundamental, John. This ought to be the ABCs, the two plus two is four. In fact, you may, you know this, the Apostle Paul, when he taught the same truth in Romans 6, is don't you know this? Yeah, you should know. <laughs> I remember, Frank, years ago, when I first became a Christian, I was reading through, of course, you read through the whole Bible, I was reading through this, and I saw this and went, oh, I, we're dead in our trespasses, and, and God made us alive. And so I went to talk to my, my local campus student ministry advisor, and that's the first time I heard a reference to, well that's not really true about us, mm. you know? And so what I learned from, from people over the years is when it comes to scripture, the main sense is the plain sense. And the plain sense is the main sense. I know that sounds like a, a nursery rhyme, but it's true. And you have to really dance around scripture to walk away from this verse and not believe that you are already made alive and already completely forgiven. And boy, this last part, Frank, is so critical because so many believers today still struggle with forgiveness for their sins. And they tend to look at their life as a sliding scale. You know, they do more good than bad, then the balance tips toward the right and God lets them into heaven. And so it's tragedy when you see people living in fear that they'll sin too much when they fail to miss the pivotal point, as you said, the foundational point, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive again. And he has forgiven us everything, Frank, everything we did, everything we're going to do today, everything we're doing right now, that's a sin, and or everything we ever will do. I don't know how we can forgive in the future, but everything, man. And, uh, it brings such freedom from fear because you can walk in faith and rest and hope and peace that you just can't when you're afraid that you're going to sin too much. Mm. Boy, John, listening to you, my head is just swimming with so many different thoughts and different rabbit trails that we could go on. Yeah, let's snip the rabbits here, bro. <laughs> yeah, I was sharing with somebody yesterday and they were struggling with sin and I shared with them, I said, that's not the issue. And they said, what do you mean it's not the issue? I said, sin is sinning, is simply symptomatic of a greater reality. And he says, well, what do you mean? I said, what's a sinner? And he said, somebody who sins. And I said, well, by that definition, if you bark like a dog, you'd be a dog. And I said, you've got to understand that it's not behavior that determines who you are, sir. It's your birth. And the key phrase in the entire Bible, from which you'll never understand the Bible if you don't get this phrase, is in Adam. We were born in Adam. And whatever happened to Adam happened to us. Therefore, we're dead in Adam. But we get born again. We get put into Christ by faith. So whatever happened to Christ happened to us. So we've been crucified. We've been buried. We've been resurrected. We're seated in heaven. And none of that could have taken place without being forgiven of everything because we had to have been made right so the Holy Spirit could come and live inside of us. 
And John, when people don't understand this, that when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. They are going to believe that they either have to do something to merit acceptance with God or approval from God, or that they can do something that will steal their acceptance and approval with God. John, I can't tell you how many people have been in my office and it's so tragic. You know, they're plugging along, walking with God, doing great. They got tempted. The enemy set a trap. They fell into the trap and then they sinned. And then they reasoned in their mind that God would never forgive them, that God could never love them, not after what they had done. And then they run from God out of fear. When if they had only known that they had already been forgiven for that sin, they could simply have said something like this. Oh, God, I was so wrong in that behavior. Uh, that behavior was not in accordance with who I am. But I know that you've already forgiven me for it. And I'm going to learn from that. They would have run into his arms instead of away from his arms and avoided some very needless heartache from going into a greater life of sin. This is a pivotal doctrinal reality, John, that we must embrace because we have an accuser and we need to be able to stand in the finished work of Christ and say, no, sir, I am already forgiven. That's right. And nothing can ever break my fellowship with my God. That's right. You know, and Paul makes that point very subtly, but he makes it strongly, Frank, when he says, and you who were dead, not because of your trespasses, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You know, we were dead, not because we sinned. We sinned because we were dead. He calls it the uncircumcision of our flesh, which means we were totally not cut off from the power of the flesh. The flesh controlled us, controlled our thoughts, controlled our actions. Everything we did was driven by that. And so God couldn't just take us out and, and buff us up a little bit. He had to basically kill us. I have been crucified with him. And then Frank, he made us alive again. And this doesn't mean resuscitation. This means he gave us a brand new life, one we never had before. And not only did he give us a brand new life, Frank, but he, he made us alive together with him. This is not alive from him kicked over to the side. This is alive together with him, raised us up together. I love what Ephesians 2 says, raised us up together, seated us together in heavenly places. You know, mm. his life, Frank, is ours. There's mm. nothing different about his life and our life now as believers. If we were to take a microscope somehow and tunnel down into us, and look past all the clutter into the basic elements of our life, we'd see that they are indistinguishable from our Savior's life. Mm. Wow. Th this changes how I look at everything, Frank. Doesn't yes, it? It, yes, it does, John. You know, 
I was reading the other day about the literature, the books, the magazines, the videos that are being produced in self-help and behavior modification. And what I read was that it's an $8 billion a year industry. Wow. Uh, predicted to be $10 billion within the next two years. And unfortunately, John, the church, and we've got to be careful here because I, I see in social media today that it's uh, hip and popular to bash the church. Um, we got to be careful. This is his bride we're talking about. But the church, his bride, has lost their way somewhat. Uh, we've gotten into the self-help, the behavior modification, stop sinning, do the right thing. That's really not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is come to Jesus, let him kill you, <laughs> bury you, and make you brand new. We are resurrectionists. We are not behavior modificationists. We're resurrectionists. We are not into self-help. We are into self-eradication, but not by ourselves, but by God. God was not interested in making us better, improving us. His only interest was to make us brand new. And he could only accomplish that by death and resurrection. And he accomplished it. We are brand new people because we're in Christ. And John, if we could circle back before we go any further, that's what baptism is all about. It pictures a watery grave, dead in him, and we rise up alive in him. As one Carlos Ortiz used to baptize people, our good friend who's now with the Lord, he would pronounce, I kill you in Christ, <laughs> which it really isn't true. He wasn't killing anybody. But then he says, I, you are resurrected in Christ. And John, I think it would be a good idea. What do you think? If we just address the issue of baptism a little bit more, sure, because there's a lot of uh, perversion, miscommunication about this issue. Probably the first one, John, is a corruption of the passage in Acts, where Peter said, believe and be baptized in order to be saved. And it makes it sound like if we're not baptized, we're not going to be saved. And it makes baptism into a work. And we've got whole sects of Christianity that believe that, that if you're not baptized, you're not saved. And we need to understand, then what would we do with the thief on the cross? Yes. That poor boy never got baptized. And there's a lot of people on deathbeds who accept Christ and never get baptized. Um, all Peter is saying is the same message John the Baptist taught. Repent and bring forth the fruits of repentance. Same message James taught. You say you have faith? Prove it. Live differently. And so when Peter said, believe, he said, be baptized. In other words, and you mentioned it earlier, it's simply the fruit of the life you've already received, a life that wants to do what Jesus Christ commands. And so, of course, we get baptized. It's a fruit of salvation. You have any thoughts you want to add to that? John? No, I, th I think it's right on what you said. When it comes to baptism, we both have been in lots of places where We've been told otherwise that you've got to be baptized to be saved. 
And you and I were both raised in a, a branch of the church where infants were baptized. And I don't see any evidence for that. I don't see anything wrong with it necessarily because it expresses the parents' intents, but it really doesn't picture the true change that happens in the life of a believer when they personally make a choice to trust Jesus as their Savior. We have now dedication of infants. That's usually more common in churches, but it kind of carries the same thing. You're making a pledge that you're going to do your best to raise your child so that she or he gets a chance to know Jesus. So mm. there's nothing wrong with that, but it doesn't carry any significant sacramental weight or heavenly impact. It's just uh, an expression of the heart of the parents of what they wish for their children. Yes, John. And you know, when we really look at the rest of scripture, the church never had to adopt a practice of infant baptism. We know the heart behind it. What about my baby? What if they die? And the Old Testament had a sign, you know, circumcision on the eighth day. So we're going to have a sign and it's baptism. And yeah. it, it largely was born out of fear. And we didn't have to do that. You know, uh, Jesus said, of such is the kingdom of heaven, let those little kids come to me. Probably one of the key passages is David. We know he was the man after God's own heart. We know he, of course, went to heaven when he died. He did sin. He had a baby from that sin. The baby got sick. He was mourning and grieving while that baby's sickness was occurring. As soon as the baby died, he took off his grieving clothes. His servants looked in amazement and said, what are you doing? And you're, you're taking off those grieving clothes. And David made this incredible statement. He said, that child cannot return to me, but one day I will go to the child. And since David's going to heaven, we can obviously deduce that that child's in heaven. And so we believe that God owns little kids until they reach an age where they are responsible to make a choice. Uh, in John 3, it says the ground of condemnation is unbelief. It's when somebody makes a willful, rational choice to reject God and go their own way. And, you know, sometimes I wonder... Is that even possible for a 16-year-old to 20-year-old? Well, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned the, a target age there, my friend. You know, Scripture is pretty clear that you had to be 20 to be accountable for decision to not go into the promised land. So I think, yeah. I think if there is such a thing as a threshold age of accountability, again, that phrase is not in Scripture. But if there is such a thing, it probably is a whole lot older than what we think. And it's probably not a hard and fast age because so many people mature differently. What about mentally challenged people who never really yeah. reach maturity? So, yeah. you know, it's just a matter of, are you capable of making a decision where you understand all the consequences? If you right. are, well, then you, whatever that age is, you probably reached it. But if you haven't, and I think most kids, and as a university professor, I'd say the lion's share of university <laughs> students um, haven't reached that age either. But I, I want to be careful. Let me re retract yeah. that statement. Some, <laughs> some might have not have reached it. All right, my friend, we're going to wrap it up here. What are the last comments you have for us today? That life is found in Christ and nowhere else. That's the bottom line. Back in Genesis, Adam made a choice. And he said, I'm going to find life in that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And when man turned his back on God, he became his own God. He bought that lie and he became his own determiner of what life is and where it's going to be found. And we've been doing it ever since. Some people find life in their job, others life in their kids, life in their spouse. Uh, but there is no life source, true life source, except God. I think it's very telling in John <laughs> chapter one, verses four and five, there's this amazing statement. In Jesus is the life and the life was the light of men. I think it's telling the word order. You only get the light. You only see things differently, correctly, when you have the life. We would tend to think, let me see the light and then I'll accept the life. Yeah, but that's it, what the world tells us. Explain yeah, to me and then I'll choose to believe. Yeah, it's actually different. It, it's receive the life. We have a phrase in the world, seeing is believing. But in John 6, 69, Peter makes the statement, we believe and have come to know. So believing leads to seeing. And this is where Jesus Christ comes in. He is the light. He is the life. He is the way. Uh, in fact, that's a verse. That's <laughs> he right. said, I, I am the way, truth, and the life. No one comes to God but by me. He is the way to God, and there is no other. Amen. Thank you, brother. Well, friends, you've been listening to the Our Resolute Hope podcast. As Frank and I have been chatting our way, well, Frank and I and Jesus, as I said earlier, have been mm -hmm. chatting our way through the epistles of the Colossians. And if Father has uh, reached out and touched your heart today in any way, uh, we encourage you to pray for us. Visit our website. You'll find us at OurResoluteHope.com. And there is a, an ever-growing number of articles and devotionals and ebooks and newsletters, etc., that you'll find there. And they all focus on one truth, Jesus Christ as our very life. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email. You'll find a platform on our webpage to do that. And of course, uh, follow us on all of our social media platforms. You'll see us on Facebook, on Instagram. We've got our own YouTube channel. So uh, like and subscribe. Ring that bell so you won't miss any new installments. And uh, one more request we make of you, if Father has really ministered life to you today, we ask that you might prayerfully consider supporting us financially. Every gift we give, uh, we channel back into the ministry so that we can bring the message of Christ's life to the church at large. Basically, my friend, we are evangelizing the church, just like Paul did mm -hmm. in Romans chapter 1. And as we close, Frank, uh, we remind all of our listeners uh, of our favorite verse from Hebrews chapter 6, that we have this hope as an anchor for our souls. Peter calls it a living hope in his first epistle. We call it, you and I call it, a resolute hope. Stable, steadfast, and never shifting, never changing. And this hope is Jesus. So today and always, choose hope, choose Jesus. Thanks for listening. We trust that you've seen Jesus today. And you know that no matter what you're facing, He offers you Himself, His own life. He wants to live His life with you, in you, and through you as you trust Him and walk by faith in this troubled world. You've been listening to Our Resolute Hope Podcast. For more information, find us online at OurResoluteHope.com and check out our social media channels under the name Our Resolute Hope.